All of this with the global warming and that, a lot of it's a hoax. It's a hoax. It's a hoax. Just a hoax. Of course. Brother. Well, I don't know why I came here tonight. I got the feeling that something ain't right. I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair. And I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs. Clowns to the left of me, jokers to the right. Here I am, stuck in the middle with you. Yep. Yes, I'm stuck in the middle. From Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles. This is the broadcast, as heard on 90.7 FM in L.A., up in Oregon on 91.7 FM KYAQ on the Central Coast, and 106.7 FM Queso in Cottage Grove, in Pennsylvania on 93 FM WLRI in Lancaster, in Hawaii on 88.5 FM KAKU, the voice of Maui, in Ohio on WGRN 94.1 FM Columbus in the Buckeye State. And up in Minneapolis, St. Paul on AM 950 KTNF, the progressive voice of Minnesota. And of course, coast to coast and around the globe, streaming on the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Indie Media Weekly, FYI Nation, Radio or Not, Radio Free Brooklyn, GDPR Nashville, Detour Talk in East Tennessee, and yes, five days a week, Blanketing Planet Earth on Radio Sputnik. I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, all-around swell fellow, says me, from bradblog.com. Thank you for joining us for another thrilling, action-packed adventure. We've got some good news, maybe. Uh, <laughs> I, I, well, I qualify that. We'll see. Some good news concerning right-wingers and global warming. A new survey says, yes, maybe they are now concerned about global warming. I'm still a bit dubious, but we will be joined shortly by CNN columnist John D. Sutter to talk about that. And uh, in, in his new column where he says, uh, quote, conservatives are warming up to climate change. See what he did there? See what he did there, Des? With mm. the, with the, okay. Um, anyway. <laughs> well, it's a little pun. Yes, it is. Uh, so we will be talking to him about that and the possibility, finally, of an actual price on carbon, a price on pollution that could be a game changer beginning with Washington State. Yes, it's up to you, Washington State. Uh, this November, if voters approve a ballot initiative up there, to finally put a fair, free market price on pollution, uh, which, Des, I think you have been calling for for quite a long time. Yeah. And this could be the start. Seems only fair, you know, if you're going to make trash, you're going to pollute, you got waste, you got to pay for it. I have to pay to have the trash collected. Restaurants have to pay to have the cra- trash collected. You got to pay to have your waste removed. So it seems only fair instead of making taxpayers do it. There you go. And uh, that, by the way, is uh, Desi Doyen, our producer and my co-host on the Green News Report. Uh, and so anyway, uh, looking forward to that conversation with John Sutter. And yes, by the way, I also hope to ask him what's up with CNN's lack of coverage of climate issues, at least on TV, if not on their website, uh, where Sutter is really doing some really great and important work, frankly. Uh, but speaking of the cost of pollution and the cost of global warming, Desi Doyen, what's going on up in Alberta is amazing in uh, in Fort McMurray. Uh, Alberta has now declared a state of emergency. 
uh, as crews, fire crews, frantically hold back or try to hold back wind-whipped fires, wildfires that have already torched 1,600 homes, according to AP, and, uh, and other buildings in Canada's main oil sands city of Fort McMurray. This has led to more than four uh, 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 evacuations of more than 80,000 residents. Right in the middle of tar sands country. I know. Uh, the the irony here is palpable, at least to me. As soon as I heard this story that, oh, man, tar sands oil country is on fire. It's like, well, you know, that's what we're, what, what did you think would happen when you burned the uh, the third largest? I think it's the third largest reservoir of uh, of oil in the world after Saudi Arabia and Venezuela. Right. Um. Flames are being kept from the downtown area thanks to the Herculean efforts of firefighters, according to uh, the Alberta Emergency Management Agency. So far, no injuries or fire-related fatalities Which have been really reported. Which is really surprising. Yeah. I mean, people people have been racing to escape the fire, to yeah. evacuate, and it's now spread to eight times the size that it was just overnight, and they're having to evacuate some areas where the evacuees had gone to because the fire had has, uh, is starting to approach even the evacuation areas. And and if you looked at the videos of these of these people driving out, trying to get the hell out of town in the middle of the night, literally having to drive through the fire to get out of it in some cases. Yes. It's It's apocalyptic uh, looking. It really is. And and also it it points out one other very interesting point. Fort McMurray, there's only one big road going in and out. Mm. Pretty much only one road at all. And that has been shut down. The fire has overtaken the only road in and out. And it's been cut off. The city is cut off from the rest of Canada, essentially. And that, I think, will probably be something that emergency managers look at and say, oh, maybe we should fix that. There's some uh, some more irony here in that some of the people who have been evacuated, uh, about 10,000, have had to drive north towards those oil fields, towards right. those tar sands oil fields. And the oil companies are actually, uh, the oil crews and so forth, are actually helping uh, uh, with evacuees and yeah. giving them a place to There a place is to stay. nothing else up there in yeah. the northern part, north of Fort McMurray. And, and there's also an additional part of this. So, you know, part of it has been the extreme heat uh, that they've been experiencing mm-hmm. up in the north because of global warming and El Nino together turbocharging this extreme heat. But let's take that tar sands oil and send it down through a pipeline and burn the hell out of it. What could possibly go wrong? Well, also, the fire is creating its own lightning, as often happens when you have gigantic massive fires like this. So its own lightning is also possibly creating more wildfires. So it's self-perpetuating, potentially. A, uh, what do they call that? A self-feedback loop? A feedback loop, yes. Feedback loop, yeah. Alberta Premier Rachel Notley, who has really been a hero. She, when she was uh, elected as Premier up there in Alberta, she said, yeah, you know what, this uh, tar sands oil, uh, maybe we ought to leave it in the ground. Uh, Which was incredible for a Premier of Alberta to say that. So she was a champion here before this nonsense started, but... uh, she uh, she surveyed the situation, uh, I guess, by helicopter. She tweeted pictures of the fire, saying the view from the air is heartbreaking. And uh, with 10,000 uh, residents having to move north, because essentially the fire cut the area in half. You're right. And so 10,000 went north. 70,000 were sent streaming, according to AP uh, South, in a bumper-to-bumper snake. And there's photos of this that are just amazing. A bumper-to-bumper snake line of cars and trucks stretching beyond the horizon down Highway 63. 
vehicles sat in ditches, uh, you know, as they ran out of gas trying to get out right. of uh, out of Dodge on this one road. Notley calls it the biggest evacuation in the history of the province. Um, 88,000 people totally evacuated. Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau said the uh, full extent of the damage, of course, is not yet known, but he called it, quote, absolutely devastating and said there's a loss on a scale that is hard to imagine. You got to wonder if this is going to change the thinking of those folks up there, a lot of whom make their living, obviously, on those tar sands and that entire industry. Um you just got to wonder. Temperatures are what, but twenty degrees higher than Actually, normal for this yeah, time of yeah, year. Yeah, and, and in some cases, forty degrees Fahrenheit wow. warmer than this time of year should be seeing. So, you know, one of the other things that that uh, Premier Rachel Notley has been saying is been talking about diversifying Alberta's economy, and that is going to be crucial to help these people have something else to do to make a living. Because, of course, you do the job that is available where you live instead of perhaps uh, the job that you'd like to do. So maybe this will be something she's going to be able to pull off. As I was reading through this report, uh, one witness saw a Shell gas station blowing up. Oh, no. Yeah. So uh, it's not just houses. It's houses, businesses that are on fire. So far, the people escaping, okay. But uh, Shell Gas is one of the big uh, exploiters up there of those tar sands. And boom, uh, up goes their gas station. Imagine that. So that's some bad news, but hopefully... Some good news uh, coming up with uh, with John D. Sutter. Uh, okay, m- moving to uh, North Carolina here. Uh, a ruling, or at least a letter, came out late on Wednesday from the uh, U.S. Department of Justice. Uh, it was sent to North Carolina concerning their House Bill 2, HB 2, or Hate Bill 2, as some refer to it. Uh, the uh, Department of Justice sent a letter to uh, North Carolina Governor Pat McCrory, that uh, House Bill 2 violates the U.S. Civil Rights Act and Title IX, a finding that could jeopardize billions in federal education funding. HB 2, of course, uh, known to uh, suckers, chumps, rubes in uh, North Carolina as the bathroom bill uh, because it requires uh, the use of... It forces, forces transgender people to use the bathroom that they were that's genetically met that is on their birth certificate right. that they were born with. And uh, but more importantly, and this is you know, part of it that doesn't get discussed much, it it outlawed any uh, anti-discrimination bills against the LGBT community uh, that have been passed in, in towns like Charlotte and stuff. Those uh, you can't do it. You can't not discriminate uh, against the LGBT, according to uh, this law that was passed by uh, South Carolina Republicans. The U.S. Department of Justice gave state officials until Monday to respond, quote, by confirming that the state will not comply with or implement HB2. The letter uh, from the Department of Justice uh, says that HB2 which had preempted Charlotte's uh, anti-discrimination ordinance, uh, that it violates section, uh, Title IX, barring discrimination in education based on sex, and Title VII of the Civil Rights Act, which bans employment discrimination. That also means, by the way, that uh, North Carolina has the distinction of violating both the Civil Rights Act of 1964 and the Voting Rights Act of 1965. Good work, North Carolina. If the uh, if this finding from the DOJ is upheld, North Carolina could lose federal education funding 
big time, big league, as Donald Trump would like to say. <laughs> uh, during the school year, state public schools received $861 million over the past year. Uh, but that's not all. In 2014 and 2015, the University of North Carolina system received $1.4 billion. So uh, we're talking more than $2 billion that North Carolina is putting at risk uh, for their education uh, system out there. $2 billion. Of course, this is $2 billion comes from the federal government, the, gov the federal government that North Carolina Republicans now hate, but they happily accept their $2 billion. Well, the, of course, yeah. it's money. Uh, well, yes, of course. Um, the... Um, the uh, Democrat, the opponents of this bill said that the letter from the DOJ confirms what we've already known, that HB2 is deeply discriminatory. It violates federal civil rights laws and it needs to be repealed as soon as possible. Chris Sigro, a Democrat uh, executive director of Equality North Carolina, says we have already lost half of, uh, 500 million in economic impact from all the people who aren't traveling there, holding conventions there anymore. He says, and now we are violating federal civil rights law and risking Title IX funding. Uh, the Justice Department letter came just two days after the Equal Opportunity Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, another federal commission, posted a fact sheet reiterating its stance that it is a civil rights violation to deny transgender employees access to a bathroom based on gender identity. So the state of North Carolina has until just Monday to respond uh, and let the DOJ know what they're going to do before they risk losing billions in education funding. Well, the uh, Republicans are giving some indication of, of, of their plans here. On Wednesday night after the letter came, North Carolina Governor Pat McCrory, obviously a Republican, uh, said at a business event that the letter was, quote, something we've never seen regarding Washington overreach in my lifetime. <laughs> Reports the Charlotte Observer. This is no longer just a North Carolina issue. This impacts every state, every university, and almost every employee in the United States of America, he added. All of those will have to comply with this new definition of requirements by the federal government regarding restrooms, locker rooms, and shower facilities in both the private and public sector. Which is ridiculous, because they're the ones putting on the new requirements. They are. They are. In a Wednesday statement... The uh, Republican House Speaker Tim Moore slammed the Obama administration for trying to, quote, circumvent the will of the electorate and instead unilaterally exert its extreme agenda on the people directly through executive orders, radical interpretations of well-settled common-sense law and through the federal court system. Senate President Pro Tem Phil Berger, also a Republican, said the government is using, quote, our children and their educational futures as pawns to advance an agenda that will ultimately open this, those same children to exploitation at the hands of sexual predators. Because men are dressing up as women and going into the bathroom and becoming sexual predators, according to this theory that has absolutely no evidence whatsoever in support of it. But Republicans are pretending that's what's happening because Republicans have a sad that gay people get to marry each other now. And so they got to do something. They got to find something. Anyway, uh, the uh, North Carolina House Speaker on Thursday went on to say that we will not take action by Monday. 
He said that deadline will come and go. We don't ever want to lose any money, but we're not going to be bullied by the Obama administration to take action prior to Monday's date. Moore said the legislature legislators, however, are discussing next steps with their attorney. I bet they are. In the meantime, uh, Alabama seems to be getting the message, at least in Alabama City, which has now repealed their new ordinance that had criminalized uh, tra- transgender uh, people from using the bathroom uh, out of fear of this same thing, losing funding, losing federal funding. The uh, The city council in Oxford, Alabama, voted three to two to revoke the new ordinance uh, just over a week after it was initially passed, and this was before the city's mayor was even able to sign it. The ordinance would have slapped people with a $500 fine or six months in jail for using the wrong restroom. And they realized, you know what, this could be a problem. Uh, This could cost the city federal Title IX funding, and so we are going to pull this because we are not crazy, stupid people like those in North Carolina. Speaking of crazy, stupid people in North Carolina and elsewhere, uh, just a reminder before we take a break, here was uh, Donald Trump recently talking about global warming. So Obama's talking about... All of this with the global warming and the, that, a lot of it's a hoax. It's a hoax. I mean, it's a money-making industry, okay? It's a hoax. A lot of it. Yeah, it is a lot of it. Money-making industry. You know how those scientists and academics are making money hand over fist that, oh, the oil companies wish they could be making that kind of money that those scientists are making in the universities. Idiot. And as it turns out, it looks like he's going to be the Republican nominee for president of these United States. Incredibly. Nonetheless, don't tell Donald Trump, but uh, some of his very own voters might now disagree with him. Big league, as Donald Trump might say. And we're going to talk about that with John Sutter after this break. I'm Brad Friedman. This is your broadcast. Thank you for joining us. Don't touch that dial. Hey, this is Brad. Do you enjoy your non-corporatized, commercial-free broadcast? Yeah, me too. But we need your help to stay that way. Please consider supporting the investigative blogging, broadcasting, and muckraking that we do here on the Bradcast and the Green News Report and bradblog.com with a donation. It's easy. Stop by bradblog.com donate and drop a few dollars in the tip jar. You can make a one-time contribution or an automatic monthly donation of any amount you like. It's easy. It'll take you about 60 seconds, and you'll help me and Desi stay on the air to continue our troublemaking and muckraking without the corporate influence of anyone. Got it? Thanks. Stop by bradblog.com donate to help us out today. Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com with you here. Uh, Writing at CNN in a column last week, John D. Sutter writes that uh, there is now new evidence showing that conservatives are warming up to climate change. Really? 
Uh, writing uh, at CNN, he says uh, global warming isn't as divisive in the United States as it used to be. The percentage of conservative Republicans, not just Republicans, but conservative Republicans, he points out, who believes climate change is happening, has jumped 19 percentage points in the last two years to 47 percent. That's according to a national survey released by the released recently by the Yale Program on Climate Change Communication and George Mason University's Center for Climate Change Communication, writes CNN columnist John Sutter. Overall, three fourths of registered voters say global warming is real, with that figure up seven percentage points since spring of 2014. And a majority of Americans, 56 percent, say correctly that they think climate change is caused mostly by human activities. So are we really seeing some movement here finally in the right direction, particularly when it comes to Republicans, but really with the public uh, as a whole who who have not seemed to understand this issue and its importance uh, as the uh, climate crisis continues to get worse on this planet. Joining us now to talk about this is John D. Sutter of CNN. He's an award-winning reporter and CNN opinion columnist focusing on issues of climate and social justice from income inequality to environmental justice to global human rights. Sutter is also the creator of CNN's Two Degrees Project, which involves readers in the network's coverage of climate change. John Sutter, welcome to the broadcast, sir. Hi, thanks so much for having me. Really appreciate it. Uh, John, uh, we've had conservatives and Republicans and evangelicals on this program over the years discussing various efforts to bring more and more of those conservative Republicans on board in regard to climate change. Uh, Just, you know, even convincing them that it's not some hoax by these greedy scientists and academics who, you know, unlike the coal and oil companies, they may, those scientists, they make money hand over fist somehow from global warming. Uh, well, this new survey is certainly good news, uh, even if I remain incredibly skeptical, if I can use that word here, about uh, right-wingers finally getting it and demanding action for, uh, for the climate crisis. What new light d- does this survey shed on this continuing national shame as you see it, John? I mean, I think the key number you, you read in the intro is that the 19 percentage point jump among conservative Republicans, um, you know, that, that jump in, in those who believe that climate change is happening. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think that there are lots of reasons for this, but it underscores something that I think I've, you know, seen reporting in the field in the last year or so, which is I think that there's a lot less division on this issue than, you know, gets made out in the media. I think the skeptical voices... Uh, especially on the conservative side, are you know often heard the loudest. They they come through the loudest on mm-hmm. on blogs. They have you know big media platforms, and they they get attention. Um, but I don't think that that's representative of what the actual you know American public thinks and what mm. voters think. And so when I saw this survey, you know I, I thought that you know this really underscores something that I have observed firsthand, and that I do see happening. I'm not you know pretending that everyone's in agreement on this or everyone, you know, understands the science as fully as, as, as would be ideal. But mm-hmm. I do think that there's a lot more room for agreement on climate change between, you know, um, conservatives and, and liberals than, than is often made out in the media. You write that a whopping 84 percent of registered voters, including 75 percent of Republicans, support funding research, at least, in uh, in renewable energy sources such as wind and solar, according to the uh, to the data from this new survey. It's very interesting that Republicans 
seem to understand that clean energy is better than dirty energy, but they still don't regard the dangers cited by scientists uh, as, as a reason to pick up the pace big time in this in this research. Why do they seem to understand one part of this equation that, you know, dirty energy is bad uh, while rejecting the other part that, you know, dirty energy is actually harming us and we we need to move very quickly to clean energy? Do, do you get a sense of that from the survey and, and from yeah. your reporting in general? So I think there's sort of two parts of that. I think one, it's, it's really a positive thing that generally we all agree that dirty energy is bad and that pollution is bad and that those things are unhealthy and bad for us for a whole host of reasons. I think the reason that, you know, people who believe in the climate science, which is, is very solid at this point, you know, um, think that there's extra sort of imperative for us to move very quickly to get off of these fuels because of their long-term effects on the climate, which mm-hmm. we're already observing. Um, so I think that is a, a point where there is some disagreement. I, I think there's little understanding in the public at large, not just among conservatives, about the the certainty of the climate science and actually how severe things could get if we don't pull off of fossil fuels very mm-hmm. quickly. Like another stat that came from that survey is that only 16% of American voters overall, so conservatives and liberals, understand that more than 90% of climate scientists agree that global warming is real and that we're causing it. So this is a very like fundamental concept if you're going to convince people that we need to act on climate change understanding that we are changing the climate by by polluting the atmosphere with fossil fuels, you mm-hmm. know, deforestation, transit, a whole bunch of things. Um, you know, understanding that is, is really key. But I think, like, in the meantime, while, you know, sort of that science is, is getting more broadly accepted, that focusing on the areas where we already have a lot of agreement about, you know, the pollution that comes from coal, for mm-hmm. instance, and its effect on asthma and air quality and those sorts of things that that those are important things to talk about too and and they are and i want to talk in a, in in a bit here about why the american public doesn't seem to understand this as well as they should and uh since you're from cnn uh you're, you're gonna have to do some explaining in a second john so you can prepare <laughs> for that but uh three quarters in the meantime three quarters of voters uh you note and 61 percent of republicans support regulating carbon dioxide as a pollutant so I'm having trouble connecting some of these dots. How can we see 61% of, uh, uh, of Republicans, three-quarters of voters, understanding that carbon dioxide is a, a pollutant, uh, but not yelling and screaming to do something about this pollu- pollutant? There seems to be a disconnect here in, in some of these numbers. Yeah, I think there's a disconnect between what people believe out there in reality and what politicians are willing to say because for them to you know mm-hmm. to to propose uh, you know regulating carbon dioxide as a pollutant, for example, they would have to go up against some pretty moneyed interest, special interests in, mm-hmm. in Washington. So I think there's a disconnect between real people and the politicians and what they're willing to take up. And, and I also think it's like a, an issue of urgency. Like when these people are being asked about the about climate issues in this survey. It really might be an issue that they don't talk about or think about in their day-to-day life too much. I mean, there's a another Yale um, survey that that found that that a, a pretty large majority, if I remember correctly, of Americans never discuss global warming or almost never discuss it. Mm-hmm. Meanwhile, we also know from surveys that the people that you're most likely to trust about global warming and global warming science are, is actually, you know, it, it's it's on one hand it's climate scientists for some people, and for others it's it's their friends and family. So I think one important message that we've gotten from 
you know, these ongoing surveys is that we need to talk about this more, and we need to talk about it not just on the news, but, you know, with each other, mm-hmm. uh, you know, at family dinners, that sort of thing. I mean, it it sounds hokey, but I, I think that that really is the way that you start to open up these conversations. No, that sounds... And just to sort of, just, to, just yeah. to really quick sort of underscore how big this disconnect is in, in my perception. Last summer, I went to um, Woodward County, Oklahoma, which, right. according to surveys, is the most climate skeptical county in the entire country. Right. Um, and I happen to be from Oklahoma, so this was sort of an interesting personal journey for me, too. But, you know, even in a place like that, that is it has the highest rate of skepticism estimated in, you know, in the entire country. I still found like a wind farm training center <laughs> happening out there. There's a booming wind farm industry. Uh, you know, farmers are making quite a bit of money leasing their land yeah. uh, for wind energy. People are, are fairly supportive of that idea. So, you know, there was a lot of skepticism. I'm not trying to cover that up, but I, but I think that there are a lot of surprises out there, too, with the way, the nuanced ways um, that people actually think about these issues. Uh, yeah, no, and that's an excellent point, and you raise a good issue because, uh, speaking of, you know, things that uh, are, are disjointed here, you see, you know, towns or, or states, I should say, like, you know, conservative Iowa, and uh, they got nothing but wind farms everywhere these days up there in Iowa. They're, you know, making a bundle off of this. So, yeah, there is sort of, uh, sort of two different tracks going on here, it seems, on the right as they're trying to make sense of uh, both the science and what they see and what they understand and and what clearly, uh, according to this uh, survey from Yale, th- you know, th- they appreciate, they understand uh, the need for clean energy and that carbon dioxide is a pollutant. That seems to be becoming clear. Uh, what what does the, uh, the Yale program on climate change, what do they chalk up these new findings to as the needle finally begins to uh, move in the right direction? I don't know if it's fast enough, but move in the right direction on climate change. W- w- what do they uh, describe as the reasons for the, this change? I think, you know, I don't think they know for sure. Um, I think some of this is guesswork. But, but one thing that they have studied some is they call it the Francis effect. So the fact that Pope Francis is talking about this a lot mm. and making a moral claim for climate action, I think that that is a, a very effective argument. You know, some of the people that are already being impacted by um, changes in the climate and that will be in the future are among the most vulnerable people in the world. So like last year, I went to the Marshall Islands, for example, which is a Pacific Island country that could disappear if, you know, if we don't take bold action to get off of fossil fuels fast because of of rising sea levels. So I think think the the idea of this being a moral imperative to act on behalf of of poor and vulnerable people is, is, I think that argument is getting out there more. I think the fact that we've seen so many heat records falling one after another after another in the last year or two, I think that that has sunken for people and, and has helped move the needle on that question of whether climate change is, is real at all. Maybe that doesn't affect what people think about what's, what's causing it, but, like, you know, I think that that has been a wake-up call. I also think that, you know, the amount of conversation around the Paris Agreement, which um, many countries signed, uh, you know, just less than a month ago at the U.N. in New York and was negotiated last year in December in Paris, um, that, you know, all these countries around the world are coming together and saying, we're going to take bold action together to get off of fossil fuels completely, essentially, this century, or to become carbon neutral is the way they put it in the, in the agreement text. Um, you know, that the level of agreement shown there and the optimism around uh, that international treaty, I, I think that that conversation might be, might be affecting the way that people see this, too. Mm. 
Yeah, uh, and I think it's got to. I think it's got to. It, it, it's it, it's hard to make the argument that yes, it's getting colder, like they used to uh, make. That we're heading towards a, a global ice age. When you see these uh, these heat records being shattered one after another, when you see the world's leaders coming together for a, a landmark uh, agreement like the Paris Agreement, and of course Pope Francis, as you point out. All right, John D. Sutter, you also write, quote, there remains a significant knowledge gap on this subject, and it's one that we in the news media must do a better job of closing. Now, we talk much on this program, on the broadcast and on our uh, our nationally syndicated Green News Report program, that the corporate media has simply failed to do its job in properly educating the electorate, particularly when it comes to climate change. We, we, uh, we even had a story on our, I think it was our most recent Green News Report, citing a Media Matters study finding that CNN devotes more time to ads from the fossil fuel industry than to stories about climate change. Even with all of those records uh, you just cited, John, uh, that we've been hitting lately uh, and the Paris Agreement, etc. Now, I know you don't speak for uh, for CNN management on this issue, and, and you're covering the hell out of it on your own space on the CNN website. But but why does this not get the attention it deserves, frankly, from outlets like CNN on air, as far as you can tell? And and how must the news media do a better job of closing the knowledge gaps, as as you write in your own column, John, to uh, to close those gaps in the public's understanding uh, of the realness and the severity of the uh, of this issue? Yeah, I mean, I can't comment for CNN as a whole or, or on that study in mm-hmm. particular, but but I can say in general that I think we all need to be talking about this more. And I think from a journalist perspective at any outlet, this is a hard topic to cover. It's something that deals with the future. I mean, really, the biggest impacts of climate change are going to be many generations into the future. So you're dealing with situations that don't yet fully exist with people who haven't even been born yet. Mm-hmm. And it, it's, it's hard to get people to think on those long time horizons. I mean, I think one thing I've tried to do is to go to some of the front lines of climate change now, things mm-hmm. that we can already see happening, like, you know, the changes in the Marshall Islands and, and get people to, to look at that. I've also tried to explore, um, you know, solutions to this issue, but it's a hard, it's a hard topic to get, to grab people's attention with. And then I think that you also run the risk of you know, when you do get their attention, it can almost seem too big, too massive for any one person mm. to do anything about. Yeah. You know, it, I think that there can be a lot of fatigue around this issue, even among people who care very deeply about it and have dedicated their entire lives to trying to, to change it. I, I think it's, it, it's a communication conundrum from <laughs> a million different angles. And, and like you said, I, 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 you know, I have tried to use... Um, uh, get our audience involved in talking about this, and I think that CNN as a whole has has done that on many occasions. Um, and and I have seen people really respond to this positively and want to get involved in trying to um, be part of figuring out how to how to fix all of it. There's sort of a perverse side uh, to the lack of mainstream corporate media coverage of this that that you sort of cite in in your article here. Uh, well, at least one of the reasons that is cited by Yale for the growing in their survey, for the uh, growing acceptance of the reality of climate change amongst right-wingers is that, uh, as you write, in the past several years, Republican leaders consistently attacked climate change as not happening, a hoax or worse. But with the primaries, the issue has faded away. Now, uh, that, in fact, has been a point that we've been critical of, of the debate sponsors, such as CNN and Fox and MSNBC and so forth during this cycle, for not 
pressing the GOP candidates for answers on climate issues. But uh, like I say, I know this is sort of a perverse way to think about it, but uh, maybe we're better off when they don't bring it up as a campaign issue, uh, particularly amongst a bun- bunch of, uh, of climate deniers like those that have been running for the Republican nomination this year. Uh, can a case be made that maybe it's just as well we don't press those uh, those folks for answers when all they're going to do is give us nonsense anyway? I know it's perverse and weird, but well, your thoughts? Yeah, I, I mean, I, I think we still have to press them. And, and I, I'd push back a little bit on the debate thing because I think that, you know, the candidates have been asked about this um, repeatedly. But um, I, I did I did find that a surprising <laughs> point. And, and mm-hmm. my takeaway from it is, is less that, you know, we shouldn't talk about it because I think that we should. But I think that we should try whenever possible to engage in a in a civil discourse about this. Like when I, I posted um, this recent article about the polling data mm-hmm. from Yale on my Facebook page, one of the first comments that popped up was, you know, like something about idiot conservatives and how counterproductive, you know, um, their contribution to this discussion is. And I, I kind of looked at that and I was like, oh, that's, that's part of the problem. Like it's, mm-hmm. it's on both sides, I think there are cases where, you know, we tend not to try to listen to each other, to try to understand where we're coming from on this issue. And, you know, I, I know that the climate science is, is real, and that it's very frustrating sometimes to hear people say that it, that it isn't. Mm-hmm. I, I completely sympathize with that view, but I don't think that we get anywhere if we just put up a wall um, and, you know, stop there and just sort of wave our fingers and say, you know, this is real, you have to listen to me. I think this really gets at deep issues of, of trust and, like, who you as a person, as a political person, as a religious person, whatever, who you really trust. And to me, I, you know, I trust the climate scientists and 97% of them are in agreement that this is real and we're mostly causing it. Um, for someone else, the person that they trust might be saying the exact opposite of that. Mm-hmm. And so I think, I think it's important to start from a place of actually trying to understand and meet people where they are and start the conversation there rather than you know, just sort of shoving back and forth, which is what is what has happened in our public discourse on climate change for a long time now. I'm speaking with uh, CNN columnist John D. Sutter. And uh, John, I, I think something else that helps people to understand what's really going on here is when they actually see solutions, when they actually see a, a way out of this mess. Now, you write in your uh, in your column on these uh, uh, conservatives warming up to uh, warming up to climate change, that 68 percent of voters support a carbon tax. Sixty eight percent of voters support a carbon tax on fossil fuel companies if the money collected from the tax from taxing pollution is refunded to the people in the form of tax cuts. This is known as a carbon tax or price on carbon or a pollution tax, if you will. Uh, in, in a column that you wrote uh, a couple of weeks earlier, you explained that Washington state voters now will have the opportunity to put their money where their mouth is with a statewide ballot initiative to establish a carbon tax. And, well, 68 percent of voters across the board support it. So in Washington state, I would think this was do well. Uh, you call uh, such a carbon a price on carbon the cheapest, smartest way to fight global warming. Explain how a carbon tax works works and, and what exactly the Washington state proposal would do here if it if it's successful this fall. Yeah, so, I mean, this, this often gets called, like, the holy grail of, of climate change policies. It's basically, yeah. like, the idea, the idea is a simple one. It's kind of, 
econ 101. It's you, you make doing a bad thing expensive. <laughs> and right. then, you know, by, by doing that, you know, you're encouraging a cleaner alternative. So in this case, it's, it's a tax on a ton of CO2 pollution that escalates over time um, to try to discourage things like, you know, burning gasoline mm-hmm. or buying, you know, products or energy that come from dirty sources. Um, meanwhile, you know, you are getting basically giving a, an economic push towards, uh, you know, cleaner energy. Um, the proposal in Washington State's based on a successful carbon tax that's already in place and has been since 2008 in British Columbia, like just to the north of them. So, you know, I think that there's a lot of evidence that this kind of thing can work. I don't think it's the only solution to climate change, but I think it's an, an easy policy option that can be implemented fairly quickly and that has been shown to make a fairly big difference. It's basically like a kind of macro, big picture level solution, trying to level the playing field and, and push, you know, give a gentle economic nudge away from dirty energy and towards cleaner sources. And it's, uh, well, it's not that gentle in that um, there's an additional price that is added to, uh, that will, you know, will show up for consumers on, on uh, the price of gas, a gallon of gas, and all sorts of other things. Uh, but that money, when they talk about uh, revenue neutral, and that's what is supported by the majority of voters, revenue neutral, how does that work exactly? What does that mean, revenue neutral? I mean, these uh, prices on, the, uh, on, on burning fossil fuels Fuels are going to be uh, levied against, uh, you know, the big uh, fossil fuel companies, the the power plants, and so forth. They will pass that charge on to the consumers. How how is that revenue neutral? How does that come back then to the uh, to the consumers? So there there are different formulations of this, but um, in Washington, what they're proposing is is basically a big cut in sales tax, mm-hmm. and also they're adding uh, like a tax credit or boost for low-income families. So basically they're saying that all the money that we take in by taxing, uh, you know, polluting activities, the the gas pump is one easy place to see that. Like, Mm -hmm. you know, gas prices will go up gradually because of a tax like that. But they're basically saying whatever money we take in in that way, we're going to rebate back to people in the form of giving them tax breaks in other areas. And and basically they're, they're, you know, thinking about how to do that in a way that it won't be a place the burden on low-income people who tend to spend a greater portion of their, you know, monthly budget on energy than than other folks. Um, so that's the way it's it's formulated in British Columbia. There's actually some controversy in in Washington State with some environmentalists opposing this from the left, saying that they don't want it to be revenue neutral. They actually want that money to go into renewable energy programs, which you know seems like a reasonable proposal. Maybe harder to get everyone, um, you know. Mm-hmm. behind perhaps but but i think that the central idea is to make the you know make polluting make doing the thing that's causing climate change gradually more expensive so it discourages us discourages us from doing that it's Wait. sort of you know, put the money where your mouth is. Kind yeah. Of well, you you traveled across the uh, you you went to uh, out to Washington State to report on this initiative uh, initiative seven thirty two that I think will be on the ballot in November in Washington State. You traveled across the border where you say in British Columbia uh, since two thousand and eight they have had in Canada in British Columbia this 
this carbon tax in place. Uh, does that money actually get back to the uh, to the voters, to to the citizens there? And of course, tell us about how it has completely destroyed the economy of British Columbia, just as its opponents said it would uh, back when it was passed in 2008. I'm, I'm amazed you were able to get across the border with all of the uh, the famine and desperation and everything that must be going on there since they passed right. this carbon tax. Tell, tell yeah, us. I think I wrote I think I wrote something like the sky didn't fall in you know, British Columbia, which is kind of what people were predicting, but there. Their economy has actually been slightly outpacing the rest of the rest of Canada. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the support, the, the level of support for the carbon tax has grown over time. There mm-hmm. was actually a lot of opposition to it um, when it was initially, you know, put into place. Mm-hmm. Um, and there are still groups and people who oppose it, but that has, you know, fallen a- away somewhat, you know, in the years that it's been been there. Uh, the first stop that I made when I drove across the border was at a gas station. I spent maybe an hour or two there just talking to people, you know, about the fact that they're paying more for gas on that side of the border, in part because of this this carbon tax. And a couple of people told me they, they didn't love that, but a lot of people said that they thought that it was the right thing to do and that they were happy to be paying that tax. Um, and they thought it, you know, it made a difference. And some people told me they wish it went up higher and that, that the province was doing more to fight global warming. Um, and they were very worried about the long-term effects of not doing anything about it, which is, I think, something that doesn't get talked about. There are real costs, and they will be financial if we don't do anything about this. So, yeah. um, you know, a carbon tax seems to me to be a, a, reasonable, place, a reasonable place to start. And, and you, we've got just a minute or two left here, John, but you, you put some pretty remarkable statistics here. Carbon emissions in British Columbia dropped 5 to 15 percent because of the tax. Fuel use plunged 16 percent between 2008 and 2013, uh, all the while, and it went up in the rest of Canada, by the way. Fuel use went up 3 percent in the rest of Canada. Uh, and yet the economy in British Columbia outpaced the rest of the country, outpaced the rest of Canada, uh, and clean energy jobs are up 12.5% in the same time frame. Seems like that's the definition of a resounding success, in fact. So uh, what are the chances? Uh, do you have any sense? Do we have any polling yet on what the chances are for the initiative to pass in Washington State? I know a lot of people are looking at it because if it passes in Washington State and if it does well, it'll spread to the rest of the country. Uh, any sense of how it's doing in Washington State? Is that still an uphill climb? I haven't seen any widespread polling there, but I think it, I think it's likely to be close. Mm-hmm. Um, I think even if it doesn't pass, like which I'm still hopeful that it will, that it has really started a, an important conversation there that I think will bleed across the borders. Like I think that this I, this is an idea that time has come. Mm-hmm. Um, I think we need to put a price on carbon pollution if we're going to take this problem seriously, which is what world leaders from countries all around the globe, you know, are, are saying needs to happen. So I think that this is going to come up more and more. I hope it will become a state-level conversation, eventually a national one. There are various formats of this type of policy, but the bottom line is that we need to put a, a price on carbon pollution if, if, we're, if we're really taking this seriously. And, I, and I'm excited that Washington State is, is testing out this idea. In the idea of having to pay to pollute. What a radical notion. Uh, John, before I let you go, you run the, uh, the CNN's Two Degrees Project over there. What exactly is the Two Degrees uh, Project? So it was this um, initiative that started about a year ago, actually, and it's to try to get our readers and viewers more involved in in climate change, to try to get this to be something that they didn't just gloss over. So a lot of the reporting that I do um, actually comes from readers asking me questions, or uh, we've had some online polls where we've had 
readers select stories that they wanted me to go out and report. So, um, the you know, I had readers that suggested the carbon tax story, for example. I had people uh, ask questions that led me out to the Marshall Islands last year, um, asking about where, you know, climate refugees would go, how those international sort of political issues work. So it's been an, an effort um, to sort of get our audience and, and on the very ground level involved in in, in shaping the way that, that I cover this issue and trying mm-hmm. to be responsive um, to them and to their uh, concerns and questions about this. Uh, you heard him. John D. Sutter wishes to be harangued by your concerns and questions. <laughs> you, can, you can do that. You can harangue him on the Twitters at jdsutter.com. No, jdsutter. And you should check out his work, of course, at cnn.com. Uh, his newest column, New Evidence, show conservatives are warming up to climate change and the fascinating uh, story he did on the carbon tax and that initiative up in Washington, uh, headline Carbon Tax, a cheap, proven fix. To climate change. John, uh, great talking to you, sir. I hope you'll come back in the future. Uh, very enlightening stuff. Uh, great reporting and uh, much appreciate you joining us today. Thanks so much for having me. It was fun. You bet. John D. Sutter from CNN. We're going to take a quick break and we'll be back with more broadcast right after this. I'm Brad Friedman. Stay tuned. <laughs> Back to the Bradcast, Brad Friedman from Bradblog.com. The Rolling Stones are not happy with Donald Trump. He's been using that song, uh, Start Me Up, at his uh, victory rallies. And uh, the Stones have finally sent him a letter saying, knock it off. Oh, good. Knock it off, the Donald. <laughs> He's Apparently, Trump use, uses a lot of uh, Stones music during his events. And the Stones are not happy about it. They are not happy about Donald Trump. You know who else is not happy about Donald Trump? Who else is not happy about Donald Trump? The Hispanics. The Hispanics? Yes, they are not happy about Donald Trump. I will explain in a moment. <laughs> But we have uh, no. That was not a. That was not a. a, 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 a I love Lucy. A, reference. I love Lucy. <laughs> Desilu Productions. Well, you got Desi right here. Yeah, right you're there. right. I will explain. Anyway, uh, the uh, Cook Political Report uh, is out now with new projections today about the electoral map map for November's presidential election. And it's looking better and better for Hillary Clinton, apparently. This uh, comes after it looks like Donald Trump sealed up the nom- the Republican nomination this week with the uh, Cruz and Kasich dropping out. So Cook Political Report, the prognosticators over there, have, have changed the map, have changed the outlook for November. And they have moved 11 states in the Dems' direction. On Thursday. Yeah, they have redefined uh, critical swing states like Colorado, Florida, Pennsylvania, Virginia and Wisconsin, all of which they uh, the Cook Political Report has had as a toss up for November. Now they've moved it into the lean Democratic column. They note that this is all early. It is subject to change. And I would say, yes, it is subject to change very much with what will happen in the uh, in the coming months. As Clinton and Trump pivot from uh, from the primaries to the general election, that is, if Hillary Clinton gets to pivot towards the general election, which she most likely will. But Sanders is still in there fighting and voters are still out there voting. Thank you very much. 
But according to the uh, Cook political report, uh, there, there's a big move now towards the Democrats as they see the outlook in their electoral model for November. Cook writes that Clinton is very vulnerable and would probably lose to most other Republicans. But with Trump as the nominee, everything is now different. They say that uh, Trump has a far greater deficits as he struggles to pick up support from women and Latino voters. More on that in a moment. The Cook political report also moved New Mexico from <clears throat> New Mexico from likely Democratic to solid Democratic and North Carolina. Oh, hello, North Carolina again. North Carolina to toss up. So um, North Carolina is now in play, according to uh, the Cook political report. Once again, Obama, of course, won North Carolina in 2008, but lost it to Mitt Romney in 2012. Meanwhile, Arizona, Georgia, and Indiana all remain in the Republican column for now, but they, too, have been moved to being less solidly Republican. So there you go. Some good news for Democrats as uh, as, as, as Trump becomes uh, the Trump train the, as the Trump train rolls into town. Yes. But I have been warning uh, Democrats who I have seen be gleeful. Uh, over the past months, and certainly since uh, Trump locked up the nomination on Tuesday after the Indiana primary, I've seen them be gleeful. And I've given you the reasons, many of them, why these Democrats should not be gleeful, should be careful what they wish for. And I, w I guess I'm going to have to keep reminding people of this all throughout the general election season. But Anand Giridhar, can you say it? Giridharadas. There you go. Anand Giridharadas. Haradas, Haradas. Right. On MSNBC, um, on the night of the Indiana primaries, uh, he had uh, he had this to say, this warning for gleeful Democrats. You know, I think there's been so much uh, glee almost uh, at this point uh, on the Democratic side about Trump. And I think it misses the fact that while Sanders had an appealing message, he was not a particularly deft and adaptable uh, candidate and Trump is. Uh, Trump is going to be able to flip-flop and pivot in a general, in a completely unembarrassed, shameless way. No doubt Donald Trump will pivot in an unembarrassed way. Um, he's going to move towards, uh, he's, gonna, he's already talking about trade deals, uh, which is something that, uh, you know, Democrats here, and they're like, yeah, I don't like those trade, deal either, trade deals either. So he's going to make his move. We will see if it works uh, but he's going to have to appeal to a lot of people. Right now, his favorable unfavorables among the Hispanics <laughs> are unbelievable. Sahil Kapoor uh, from, uh, from Bloomberg pointed out that a recent Latino decisions poll found that Trump's favorable, unfavorable with Hispanics, nine favorable and 87 unfavorable. That's right. Hispanics among Hispanics, just 9% of them find Donald Trump palatable enough to vote for, presumably. And which is amazing. And just in case you think that, oh, well, that's because uh, the Hispanics, as Donald Trump calls them, <laughs> don't like Republicans. Um, that's not the case with uh, with John Kasich. Um, 30, let's see, it was 27 percent favorable among Latinos. Cruz was 36 percent favorable among Latinos. Donald Trump, just 9 percent favorable. And uh, I think in uh, back in 2012, Mitt Romney was something at 21, 22 percent of the Latino vote. 
Donald Trump so far uh, with 9% approval from the Latinos and uh, probably did not make it better for himself today with his tweet. Did you see this tweet? No, what was it? Oh, my God. (laughs) Oh, my God. And uh, Well, okay. I'm laughing at it. I know. Well, happy Cinco de Mayo. Hashtag Cinco de Mayo, says Donald Trump on the Twitters. The best taco bowls are made in Trump Tower Grill. I love Hispanics. Oh, boy. And a picture of him eating a taco bowl in in his office at the Trump Tower, giving the thumbs up. I love Mexican food. That's not pandering at all. Uh, have I uh, have I overestimated Donald Trump? <laughs> I mean, if this is his pivot. This is his unembarrassed pivot uh, to the general election. I love Hispanics with a taco bowl on Cinco de Mayo. Really? Maybe I have overestimated him. We will see. I think it's I think it's safer, uh, frankly, to overestimate than underestimate him. Yes, please. Uh, particularly with uh, with Hillary Clinton. If she becomes the nominee, she does have a lot of vulnerabilities. But uh, I love Hispanics. Ben Goodman, uh, senior associate at Mission Ready, which is a nonpartisan security organization of retired generals and admirals. Tweeted a warning that, uh, well, that I heard uh, to my ears in any event. He said, as someone from the state that twice elected Governor Paul LePage, he's the main governor who I've called the uh, the dumbest governor in the country, possibly the dumbest governor in history. Uh, as someone from the state that twice elected Paul LePage, I plead with you. And then he adds in all caps, do not underestimate Donald Trump. We, here on the broadcast, will not be underestimating or uh, even maybe overestimating him. I don't know. We'll have to figure this out as we move forward. But uh, beware the Trump, gleeful Democrats. My thanks to our producer, Desi Doyen, to our booking goddess, Cynthia Cohn, to my guest today, CNN's John D. Sutter. If you missed any portion of our program, you can download it as ever at bradblog.com. It's free. You can also subscribe to our podcasts at iTunes. It's free there as well. Although you must pay the toll and give us a good review to make it a little bit easier for other people to find us as well. You can find me and follow me and harass me on the Twitters with all your Taco Bowl photographs at the Brad blog. Use hashtag Bradcast if you don't mind. You can drop me email. I'm Bradcast at Bradblog.com. That's it. Until we meet again, I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world. Everybody.